0: Hello, I'm Alberto Salvato. Welcome to Crime Time, a Virginia criminal law podcast. I'm here with Anna Dvorak, Anthony Norse, and Ann Thayer. Enjoy the show.
1: So here it is, legal disclaimer, because we are lawyers and we've got to write one. So if you are listening to this podcast, Thank you. We sincerely hope you are listening to this podcast for its entertainment value and not with the intention of acquiring legal advice for any individual case or situation. I mean, come on, you wouldn't take advice from someone you have never met or spoken to directly, right? If you were bleeding profusely, you wouldn't listen to a podcast in hopes of a bandage somehow materializing over the internet and onto your 3D printer. Seeking actual legal advice can be just as important as a tourniquet. The hosts of this podcast are in no way intending to create an attorney client relationship with any listener. Sorry, we are sure you all are great people, but we cannot stress enough how little we know of you and your case, and rather than risk an awkward moment, let us just remember we have never met. Nothing on this platform should be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. We are just a group of friends with differing opinions and viewpoints, which we will try to explore through discussions of current events, law changes, and whatever else floats our fancy. In this episode, Teaching the Law to Law Enforcement, we have a very special guest. Brad Marshall,
0: I've known him for many years and I first met him as a prosecutor. But I'm going to let him introduce himself to our
2: audience. Brad, what do you say? Thanks, Alberto. Thanks for having me. Good to see everybody. My name is Brad Marshall. As Alberto said, I'm a partner with Vanderpool, Frostick, and Nishanian, a law firm in Manassas. Most of my practice is focused on criminal defense, complex investigations, and victim representation. But about a quarter of what I do is I'm a town prosecutor. And in my former career for 13 years, I was a state prosecutor in Prince William, where Focused on violent crimes, criminal street gangs, and uh, mental health and veterans cases. And now, Is there anything
1: okay. you don't do? <laughs> <laughs> I know, like, I think you've covered everything in the criminal law area. Yeah, on I, all need sides.
0: A, I need I need a tune-up of my car. Do you do that too? <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, so for What's... our listeners, it's like you have all the information. He's got like the vault. He's got the police's info, the prosecutors, the defense attorneys, and that's not a not pretty just the, awesome thing. Not
0: just the info. He's got the perspective coming from all those sides. So he's got the perspective coming from as a former state prosecutor now to a local prosecutor, but he also sees it through the eyes of a defense attorney. And then on top of that, you also see it through the eyes of law enforcement, because I'm sure you hear their stories and hear you know, what they go through and and you experience why they decide to do certain actions or how they maybe not get what they should be doing. And that's where your role comes in to teach them. Talk about some of the things that you actually cover when you train these officers.
2: Well, you know, I think it's important to make a distinction between the general two types of trainings that law enforcement generally have. And I guess maybe there's three. One is Academy, you know, all the front loaded stuff, and it's kind of the tip of the iceberg training and, you know, enters into a million. It's, it's a survey of the law, basically, a bunch of different topics very quickly, but obviously focused on, you know, criminal statutes, Fourth, Fifth, Sixth Amendment, things like that. And then you have in-service training, which is established police officers, very much like RCLEs, where they have to take certain amount of classes um, every year and certain topics and and whatnot. And then I guess there's a third type, which is the specialty training of like conferences and specialty courses and and things like that. And Like the
3: DUI stuff and other, you know, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. DUI training or, you know, when I was a commons Attorneys, I worked for the Commons Attorney Services Council and we did a lot of joint law enforcement and prosecutor trainings where you're there as a team and there's a DUI model for that. There's a a gang model for that, a drug model for that, homicide model. So, you know, that's kind of a specialized training. But I did some of those and and, and lectured at conferences and things like that. I teach for the Virginia Association of Regional Jails. But most of it has been local law enforcement and most of it has been in. Service, focusing on legal updates. And that tends to really focus on statutory updates. So we go very hard at that in about June and July of every year, because most statutes in Virginia, at least criminal statutes, take effect on July 1st. And we try to get ahead of that, you know, just make sure that they're ready for that. And then the appellate updates, which are a bit more academic, and you can kind of really get into the changes of the law, the evolution of the law. And I think it's, you know, it's really important to, you know, try to, present the information, whoever your audience is, but when it's police, present it to them in a way that isn't legalese and isn't, you know, what, what how we might train each other just to make sure it's you know, approachable and therefore digestible and that they'll actually use it. but well, I
1: just wanted to ask this question. You started teaching when you were a Commonwealth attorney, but not every Commonwealth attorney gets to teach at these academies. And how did you either cultivate that interest or how did you get sort of chosen to do that?
2: Well, that's a really good question, Anna. It kind of started, there was a, I was new in the office and it's just kind of the way things work in government, right? The newest people have to do the stuff that everyone else doesn't want to do. And part of that is going to do these kind of monotonous trainings and whatnot. I think the first one I ever did was a legal update at the Prince William Regional Jail about every crime that could occur in jail. You know, and it's basically just going all these statutes and, the you know, communicating with prisoners and bringing things into the jail and, you know, all that stuff. But there was a particular prosecutor in the office who is now a general district court judge who did a lot of teaching and kind of took me under his wing to do that in the beginning. And then once you start doing it a little bit, you start getting called on more and more. And then all of a sudden I'm doing like the CDU, the crowd dispersal unit training. So, you know, you think I've read every law on rioting in Virginia? No but you got to read it and then you go and and train that and then you just kind of pick up topics and then it blossoms into its own thing and when I took over I think CIT might be the best example crisis intervention training which is teaching police officers and and others but especially police officers how to handle people in the throes of mental health crisis when you know you're called as a law enforcement officer and and how to deal with it de-escalate hopefully get them you know treatment as opposed to arresting them depending on the situation things like that I started that actually with the elected commonwealth attorney of Alexandria teaching with him and kind of took it over and it just kind of blossomed into its own. And that was before CIT was what it is now. Everyone knows what it is now. And, And that was Brian Porter out there in Alexandria? Yeah. He was actually teaching in Prince William. And uh, I remember the first class I taught with him was the day after he won his election. And he was still committed to it. He was an assistant before that. And he was still out in the Prince William training academy at 8 a.m. the next morning. And that that said something to me. I was like,
0: this is important. And just so you know, one of our former guests, David Lord, works for Brian Porter. And I do believe that Brad mentioned a particular judge who was originally a prosecutor, I believe, was a guest of ours, and I like to call him JJ. Uh, is this <laughs> is this? Who, are we thinking of the delete. same person? Can we delete I, you? I would <laughs> I, I, I like to on. give him a shout out because I really enjoy. I really yeah. enjoy. Well, I'm attention. complimenting Judge Jarvis, frankly. Yeah. 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 Oh, absolutely. We had him on and, and I insisted on calling him JJ and I don't think he minded. So he does.
3: He not. actually <laughs> welcomed it. I have a question. Do you guys train the fire department as well or just the police, just the police? The
2: fire department, I think I've done some, you know, some stuff related to mental health and stuff like that, but no, not really. And that might That's be one true. of the shortcomings of, especially, you know, CIT is, is that it doesn't do that. The others are hyper law enforcement focused. So that was just great.
0: Do, I do I don't know if you want to answer this, but do you find it challenging to discuss these things with, say, with say, like veteran police officers versus the newer rookie ones, where they may not be set in their ways and. I mean, nothing bad, but I, I could see like a discussion coming out where the interpretation of a statute may not jive with what you're saying.
2: Yeah, I, I prefer a class that has both because you get the war stories and the things like that, but then you do get the questions and, and, you know, like we always say, there's no such thing as a stupid question. You encourage those types of questions because people are wondering these basics and, you know, maybe it's so elementary to us because we do it all the time. We, we skip over it and we need to go back and focus and make sure those foundational things are answered. And then using the war stories, CIT was great because that's exactly what it is. And we're going through like a four hour presentation and it's just peppered with questions. And, you know, we try to try to ground it in real life experiences. I start with the Cray Deeds incident that really led to mental health reform in Virginia. And we talk about that and we move from there and we start all the way at the ECO process that, you know, prosecutors never touch, but it's extremely important. The emergency commitment order, temporary detention order. And then we move in. And believe it or not, the last third of the class is what happens once the case gets to court. Everything before it is, you know, ECO, TDO, competency, sanity, mental health docket, you know, stuff like that. So very small portion of it is actually here's what happens in the courtroom. Part of that small portion is that how they
0: testify, how they present themselves, or is it just it, some it, it can be really,
2: really to explain the process to them because no one sits down and explains, you know, how NGRI works to police. No one sits down and, and explains, you know, why is my case keep getting continued? I, why, what do you mean he's not competent? And he talked to me that night. And just trying to explain sanity being at the time of the fence, competency being in, in current real time and how dynamic it is, how quickly it changes, how to train, how to do other things, but also point out, you know, when... They need to take a steps to do certain stuff, come across someone and, you know, you need to take steps to get them to a crisis assessment center. They might not meet any criteria at all. We call it the taxi. They might not meet any commitment criteria at all. But what can you do to help that person? Can you connect them to a service? You help them do that type of stuff and get away from just law and order and, and get to, you know, really protect and serve.
3: It's just funny how the cycles of law happened because I know my uncle, my great uncle back in Pittsburgh, they had all those like little bars that were within the neighborhoods. And if you were trying to walk or drive home, the cops to just give you a ride home. And then we got to like the DUI stuff. And now we're looking even more at like mental health and the other issues that are going on instead of just like arresting people. It's just funny over the years, like how it's developed.
1: Absolutely. Well, I also know that I think that when I started in 2004, here in Fairfax, I know that there's a lot of resistance to mental health as this excuse that it's it's not a, a real thing. It, you know, it keeps people from being held accountable for their actions. There's a lot of resistance, and a lot of that attitude, I think, to a certain extent, has changed dramatically within the police force. And part of that is also like we had you know a lot of Commonwealth attorneys who were old school or retired for many years that were like, no, you know, they're not guilty, but there's an attitude that not guilty by reason of insanity doesn't work as a defense that often. That means you don't have that defense, but it sort of discounts the mental illness and how we deal with it. And I just feel like there's just been such a sea change as to how we approach people. But I don't know if you still get some sort of quiet resistance to kind of adding social work to a certain extent to policing as you're training. Do you tend to get any of that sort of pushback or skepticism more from veterans, I assume, but...
2: Yeah, I think skepticism is the, the better word for it. But I think education is the key. You know, when you say not guilty by reason of sanity, all they hear is not guilty. So you need to explain, you know, so they just walk away. They didn't know. John Hinkley Jr. just got full yeah. unconditional release this year from 40 years ago. No, that's not what happens. And explain the process and you know what happens and, and, and everything like that. That helps a lot too. But there is some skepticism before we started recording. I mentioned a case and I'm not trying to lump prosecutors and, and police all into one category. They're two distinct professions with two distinct roles. But I was telling a story about being in a local jurisdiction and having a mental health case and going to the prosecutor. And the very first thing they said was, oh, a psychiatrist will say anyone's on the spectrum if you pay them to write the report, you know, and that type of thing. That's kind of how the police think about it, too. I was shocked when I heard that I was really disappointed. And because I had, you know, 20 years of records to, to support it. I do think they're a little the police and prosecutors are a little reluctant when all of a sudden, you know, there's a mental health diagnosis that didn't exist before. But, you know, our clients go under all these evaluations, especially if competency and sanity issues are going on. And these things, you know, come to the forefront. So I don't think they're out there just searching for them, but they naturally arise. But there's certainly skepticism. And I'll never forget, I was doing a presentation on mental health at a local community forum once, and I was sitting beside the spouse of an elected official. And I said something along the lines of, we really need to stop treating the mentally ill like criminals. And he looked at me and said, but they are. I was, this was five years ago, six years ago. I was like, wow, I can't believe that's that's the response. But the paradigm is changing. The stigma is, is going away. I think that's a really big part of it. I think police are also uniquely tailored to PTSD, depression, other things because of their profession. And there's really been a push within law enforcement to make sure they have the support they need peer support you know peer counseling things like that and i think that has broken down the stigma within the profession that hey just because i express that i'm having you know these feelings doesn't mean my badge and gun are getting taken away because that used to be what happened and so no one would ever say it you know Mm -hmm. because you're not a cop anymore now that they're seeing that and they're taking a different approach to it i think that what's happening internally with police and admitting the reality of PTSD and stress and depression. And, you know, you may remember in a local um, department here, four or five years ago, there was a very tragic spate of suicides and like three or four in a a pretty quick period within a year. And, you know, when you see that and it's your buddy who you're just out with, (laughs) everything seemed fine, you know, and then this happens. I think it really woke people up. Um, at least locally, but nationwide, it's absolutely a big trend. I give a lot of credit to the Virginia State Police. They really push critical incident response is what they call it, and peer support where when there's an officer involved shooting and, you know, not just police getting shot. They're not just going to counsel, hey, you you just saw something happen to your friend. But the toll it takes on an officer when they are forced to shoot someone and, you know, treating them and helping them and understand. I have never seen an officer in that situation. In the most recent Prince William officer-involved shooting, I represented most of the police officers involved. And the body cam, the crying, just the emotion as soon as it happened. And there was just no question it was justifiable. But the emotion and the toll it takes on, you really see it and these are some really hardened officers who are crying and hugging each other. I mean it was a really hard thing to do. And I think that that has helped internally, you know, take the message outside because they've seen the toll it takes, you know, on their own profession. I mean you can't forget what police officers see day in and day out. I mean just they're the first well,
0: oftentimes are the first responders to accidents where there's a fatality and they see some of the most gruesome things you could possibly see. Crime scenes are horrible. It's got to go somewhere. I mean it's it's
2: Right, they um, go
1: to all unattended deaths. So if there's, they go to yeah. suicides, they go to overdoses. Everything. It's
2: and they also go to tell the parents of those kids. Yeah. and you know those things are are mm-hmm. highly traumatic. But you know, I just read this great story the other day about these deputies out in Falkir who had to help birth a baby because you know that's what they got flagged over, and that's what was happening. So you, they have no idea what they're going to face day in and day out. And you know, I I tell this story a lot. I'll never forget the first murder scene I went to as a prosecutor. And for me, it was, you know, I was young. I, was, I happened to be the on call. I call my boss. He's like, go, tell you know, call me. And I go and, and the body is, it's basically being treated like a piece of furniture. They're stepping around it's stepping around. I mean, these are all seasoned cops. This is my first time, you know, and I'm like, wow, I can't believe how collected they are. And then I start to gather my stuff. I'm like, wait a second, get out of my crime scene. Like I start to get my wits back, you know, and, you know, stop walking around in here and everything. But it was like a coffee table being stepped over. And it was really shocking to me. And I think you just get entrenched. You know, you get used to it. And it's a terrible thing to say. I remember the first murder scene I went to. I've been to 20. I don't remember all the rest. Wow,
0: wow. And, I, and you don't mean any disrespect by saying the coffee table You're, I mean, it's just saying everyone else is just so used to that because they've been to so many of them to them. It's just another day. It's just another I mean, Thursday. You
3: kind of have Wednesday. to step back from it a bit. Don't. Otherwise you couldn't, I mean, just think about some of the cases that people deal with, with violence or mental health or heinous things, even things that were just split minute decisions that someone made a mistake it doesn't matter what the actions were, but like you kind of have to step back and have kind of a sense of humor and dehumanize it a little bit or else i don't know how you get mm-hmm. through it
2: yeah there's a there's a dark sense of humor in, in these professions and ours too you know sure um, the stuff we say to each other in the courthouse always is is not stuff we would say to our clients or- if
3: you walked out into a bar or something or people talking right. about <laughs> some of those comments you'd be like i, uh.
2: I always joke because you know we'll be out at happy hour or whatever and we'll be talking about stuff and the tables besides looking over what the hell (laughs) stop talking about
1: a raven murder yeah i know there's some there's some moments when we all stop and we're like i don't think we can say any of this in public and it is a way of getting rid of it's so surreal you just have to get it out of your brain in some ways around people that know what you're seeing and talking like we don't go on scene like we're not there for the car accidents necessarily but i've gone to an autopsy i went to the first autopsy i went to was a nine year old. I mean, it's really a lot. The cops see the stuff we all see, but it's really it's really stressful.
0: How did you get involved in the case that quickly to to go to the autopsy?
1: They have on duty camels. No, I mean for Anna. Oh, for me. Oh. Oh well, when I was an intern at the Alexandria Public Defender's Office, and we had homicide of a nine-year-old, so we went to the Emmys over here and went to the autopsy with the attorney. We got assigned right after the murder happened. It wasn't like a who you know, it wasn't like a cold case or something. So.
0: I've seen pictures of autopsies, but
1: I've never they're horrible, obviously. They're, they're terrible. They're all bad. I don't enjoy it. So, Brad, what's it
3: like to have, you had police in your family, you've worked with police as a prosecutor, you teach them now, and then now you do a lot of defense, even though you work with victims and stuff, too. Do you ever have officers giving you a hard time about having switched the role or seeing you differently? Or, like, that's a lot of different hats to have played. Benedict
2: uh, Marshall. Yeah, I, <laughs> Constantly. But, you know, I always joke around, They'd like, what role are you playing today? I'll say, well, some days I I defend the innocent and other days I prosecute the guilty. That alone kind of shows you the mindset of it. I find, I mean, honestly one of my biggest assets is my relationship with law enforcement. And so It helps me a lot, I think. You know, I've got a lot of these guys' cell phones numbers. I call them ahead of time. We talk about cases and whatnot. And, you know, they're in a good place. And they also know that I'm just there protecting someone's interests. I'm not the one that did something to them. I'm not the one. Just like you guys. We're not the ones that did it. We're just representing someone. But I think that because of my history of them, they trust me. And they know I'm not trying to throw them under the bus or... anything like that i'm just trying to get get a good result with my client uh for my client and there are times where where you have to go and, and say look this huge mistakes were made and and you know hopefully it's a learning experience or whatnot but a lot of it as you guys know is trying to salvage something i find criminal defendants to be pretty realistic as opposed to civil clients for example who are basically just trying to they know they did something wrong and they're trying to mitigate it civil is a whole another world. They didn't do anything wrong. The other side's wrong, not a principle. They'll fight, fight, fight and pay all this money and, and et cetera, et cetera. And because of that mindset that they're mostly trying to mitigate, I generally go in and start trying to work out a reasonable resolution once I've analyzed the case and, and made sure they can prove their case and find the shortcomings and, and things like that. But I think, all of us try our best to to objectively analyze the case before we put on our advocate hat, whichever side it's on. And I think the better, and I mentioned it earlier, the better you know the other side, I think the better you are on your side. And so I, I generally find the police to... To be receptive to it and whatnot i've worked very closely with them a lot of them be like oh if brad's on or whatever he said like that must must be right you know that's great it, they don't just roll over because i know them either you know and, and we're in there trying to make the truth come out whichever way it comes out but when i was a prosecutor i used to say this about defense attorneys but now i say it about police prosecutors spencer he's everyone we're friends in the hallway we're adversaries in the courtroom but we're never enemies We're never completely against each other. And we never, we can't forget that. Do you give them the case
3: law and statutes when they've messed up or when you beat them like Tony does?
2: (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, I try to highlight it. What What do you do, Tony? Oftentimes the officers will actually ask me to read the cases. They want to get the cases in their hands or to figure out which statute we're using. So they will actually request stuff from me. But speaking of materials, I'm curious. I think you had mentioned this before the recording. How do you come up with the materials that you give the officers? Is it a cross-section of all information or is it just law enforcement oriented? It depends on the type of training. The ones that I do most are kind of legal updates and whatnot. So I constantly track appellate cases. So every Tuesday, I read the Court of Appeals, Weekly and Digest. Every Thursday, I read the Supreme Court. And then I'm constantly tracking the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm pretty bad about Fourth Circuit. It's pretty hard to track issues on the Fourth Circuit. You know, it's kind of nerdy, but I love looking at the docket for the first... Uh, you know, week of October and seeing what the Supreme Court's about to do. And you can really flag some issues and pay attention to them and whatnot. So a lot of it just comes from the case law and kind of flagging it as it goes. I do not reinvent the wheel many times before we started recording. I mentioned that when I'm doing a presentation, I kind of work back channels and I get the Indigent Defense Commission's version, which is, you know, the basically the public defenders and appointed attorneys. I get the Commonwealth's attorney's version and then I get the judge's cool version. And I kind of synthesize the three. And, um, you know, it's it's really interesting the the differences in them, especially the defensive prosecution, but I get a lot of it there. And then the specialized stuff, it'll be a refresher. And so if we're doing fourth amendment, you know, I started cats and move forward. I mean, I really, I started the founding and move forward, but I started the case law at cats and show them the evolution. They don't need to know the, the trespassory theory of cats and, and, you know, how it's changed, except they do need to know that it's going back to the trespassory theory. So if you can walk them through the history of it, I think it really helps them understand where the law is going.
1: The one thing I've always thought and this is just intuitive because I don't know what's taught to the police for sure. But when we were in law school, you'd read these cases and they would be like, well, the Quarles case, that's an easy one where like the gun, they're like where's the gun, where's the gun? And no Miranda was read, but they're saying it's an exception because of the danger to the community and the exigent circumstances. And then I think there's some statement in Quarles where like the Supreme Court says, well, most officers won't ride up against that line. But what we saw from that you know, Wren and with the pretextual stops and, and quarrels is that, of course, that's what they did, right? That's how they were trained is like, this is where you can go. So a good officer is going to do these things instead of be the exception. And when you're teaching police, do you basically show like this is up to the line where you could go and th- when you cross here, that is, that's bad. And because I'm assuming that's kind of how you teach is this is how far you can stretch it, but I'm just assuming.
2: Yeah. I mean, you're trying to give them tools to do their job. And, you know, I think 2020 was probably the most interesting because we had to do a very quick legal update on the special session. And it happened extremely quickly. And there was a lot of law um, enforcement or a lot of, you know, progressive issues and reform and whatnot. And it was a little mind boggling. Frankly, you know, I'd be teaching about the new marijuana law, for example. And I, you know, sometimes it's hard for me to hold back because I am a constitutionalist, textualist and an originalist and then, you know, uh, just when we're talking about the marijuana law, for example, and I remember some of them commented after the fact this was pre-recorded and went out to all of Prince William Police. And then we did Q&As at the end. And I remember saying, now for the first time since Jamestown, consent does not give the police the ability to search for something. And for the first time in the history of the Fourth Amendment, you know, I do say that just so they see how big of a sea change some of these things are. But you try to pull examples in and everything else. One thing, and I was thinking about this earlier when I knew this is what we're going to talk about, and it's looking back, I I wish we had had a different paradigm to police training because my goal when I was training police, especially with Fourth Amendment, Fifth Amendment, Sixth Amendment, but especially Fourth Amendment, was how to get them in that car, how to get them in that house, how to get them to where they think the evidence is. Legally. Legally. (laughs) And... Looking back, I think that that's not the best approach. It's not win at all costs. It's not get in that car at all costs. You know, think, step back and think, why are we doing these things and what do we hope to accomplish? And I think we really saw that, I think that approach this, you know, out to, you know, find everything we can and not just deal with what's happening in front of us and things like that. I think that had a lot to do with what, 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 drove the the protests and the change and everything else during that time period, because it really did start to have this feeling of, you know, the police are patrolling and trying to get in our cars and search and every chance they have. And I, I don't love all the reforms that came out of the special session, but what they were basically trying to do was take away the things that could be seen as arbitrary that led you to get into a car, like the dangling object and the tent and, and things like that, that, you know, did tend to be... Used when it was convenient. You know, I mean, I was watching a video the other day of a police citizen encounter on social media or something. And it was basically, you know, talking about how this police officer got the situation wrong or whatnot. But he had body cam on, and in the body cam, he goes back to his car and calls a prosecutor to get advice. And one of the questions the prosecutor asked was, well, you know, what crime has he committed? What do you, you know, you saw him in a neighborhood, but do you have reasonable or takeable suspicion of, of any kind of crime or traffic offense? And the officer's response was, if I follow him long enough, I'll find one. And I was like, wow, that's really what we were teaching. It really was. And I've heard in police academies many times, if you, you follow a car long enough, they'll make some violation. They won't signal, they'll touch the line, something. And that gives you your opportunity. And I think that opportunistic approach was wrong. I think it was a bad paradigm. And I think it's shifting some, you know, there are some times when, when you know, you need to get in those cars and and, and everything else, but I don't think that should be the end goal. I think it, it, you know, needs to be a a step back and what's our goal here. And if these are if our goals, public safety and, and things like that, let's focus on that as opposed to finding every piece of contraband became. Thinking about contraband, has the dynamics of teaching about drug crimes changed and is addiction becoming more of the teaching for the officers? Well, I have no statistics on this, but I have to assume that, you know, I know drug crimes are down as far as being charged. I don't think drug use is down. But a lot of felony drug cases started with the odor of marijuana, you know, mm-hmm. and now that that isn't a, a grounds to search or seize, then, you know, I think that that, that alone has, has had a huge impact. But especially during the pandemic, I think we know statistically that drug use increased, especially, you know, fentanyl overdoses, things like that. Like, there's just no question about it. But, you know, was it because of the pandemic and because people were home and, you know, were doing different things? Was it because the police weren't able to get to those drugs in the street and so people were able to overdose on them? Was it some of this and a bunch of other causes, too? That's probably the answer. But, you know, I think that as far as drugs and whatnot, it's been it's been an enormous change. You may know the Virginia State Police retired their entire canine, their drug-stuffing dog unit. Because I they know were, that. They were all trained to smell marijuana and you you can't untrain them from that. So they kept the bomb sniffing dogs, but Virginia State Police currently has no drug sniffing dogs.
1: Wow. That's pretty, that's, that's pretty crazy. One thing I, before the pandemic, I thought Prince William, at least I read about in the news that Prince William itself, when they were going to drug arrest, or if they went to like, they raided a house and there was a bunch of people who were using that they gave the option to go to treatment versus jail. They were sort of starting a pilot program. Was that a thing or am I just making that up?
2: You're right. Um, There were certain operations, there were large scale joint federal state local operations where uh, they basically, you know, this is four or five years ago, and they took some community services board clinicians with them to the scenes. And I'm not saying I don't think it was like treatment or get arrested. It was Look, you're getting charged. You want to get treatment first, you know, and and some of them, I think if they were successful in treatment, I didn't handle a bunch of those cases, but I'm familiar with them. And if they were really successful in treatment, they, you know, they got reduced charges or dismissed and things like that. And that was really innovative and it it got a lot of press. And that's why it stands out to you, because that was new. That was a new thing. But fast forward and, you know, it was really the beginning of a new thing because, Now, Prince William gets a lot of press on our co-responder unit. Our co-responder unit is exactly that. It is a government program where the clinicians are with the police, in the police car, out in the field, and responding to mental health emergency calls and things like that. You know, really having someone there to treat them right then and having crisis assessment centers on both sides of the county. The county's also just funded a new drop-in center that will not only have beds and and space for those that are committable, but recliners where people who are just having a crisis but might not meet criteria can go and get some counseling, get some help and and walk out. So, you know, with the different tools that are being given um, to the community and to the police and everyone else to focus on mental health at the same time as as community safety, I think that, you know, the co-responder is a really great model. I'm a member of the Community Services Board of Prince William County, and we are huge advocates of of co-responder because it's making an obvious difference. I mean, statistically, no question about it, but just anecdotally, you know, you talk to one person who was able to work with them and get help right away and never see a jail and see a success story like that. And and it's all worth it.
3: They're getting to the root of the problem. It's like when we had the Commonwealth attorney, David Lord on from Alexandria, he talked about most people that are going on probation. Housing is a big issue. They weren't stable, and then it would lead to other crimes. And you know, if you get to the root of like what the issue is, and get people set up with the tools they need to succeed, you give people a way better chance than just okay, here's your court date, here's your sentence. You know, now you have this felony where you can't live here or work here, and you know that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I don't think there's there's no question. And you know, just trying to to get to the, the housing is. Perhaps the biggest problem we face in Northern Virginia, very affluent, you know, community. But the housing is our biggest problem and we don't have a place to put people. And so our reentry programs, you know, it's great on leaving the jail, but it's really not great on reentering because there's nowhere to take people. You know, you try to give them all the resources and everything you can. And then they get in a cycle. And, you know, we've all heard the stories about the people who, you know, try to commit certain crimes in winter because they know they'll be held, you know, until it's warm out and, and and things like that so you know i definitely think that you're right getting to these to these root causes in the end i push it politically a lot i push these these things and i i try to remind everyone that you know it sounds like this is you know kinder and gentler and a different perspective and you know quote-unquote liberal and all this stuff but i go and say look if you can spend some money on the front end to keep the community safer and save a ton of money on the back end, I don't see how that's not conservative, not liberal. Everyone has the same goal. It's just, we might disagree on how to get there.
1: Yeah. I think you just have to, it's changing minds on that. This is a lot of really interesting information that we could talk about for a whole other episode about, you know, sort of the mental health and the, our sort of our and substance abuse populations, getting them reset in our communities. But dealing with back to our police officer training, we all come in contact with police officers and, you know, the younger ones, rookies who don't, you know, those are, they're the ones who make generally the most mistakes that we see on dash cams or body cams. And when you go and train, do you, you talk about the war stories? Do you feel like the police officers ask you, like, I lost this case because X, Y, and Z I think it was just the judge being liberal, or this was whatever. Do you feel like you're able to, are you able to train them on their experiences and get them to see that this is why this was a mistake? Or,
2: right, absolutely. And I think the um, one of the biggest benefits, and we just, didn't realize it when the program was being put in place. But one of the biggest benefits of the body-worn camera program is the ability to use it for training and go back and look and see examples and see what actually happened and what was said. You know, we look at it as a, as a you know, silent witness in court and it differentiates, it shows evidence, it shows that police maybe didn't do what someone says they did, which is generally the case, but it, of, it often shows, you know, the mistakes they're making and things like that. And, you know, I'm a town prosecutor and when I'm watching these, I'm watching the videos and and when I see them like, Oh, I wish you didn't do that, you know, things like that. And and we do use that as, you know, like training opportunities and teachable moments. I don't really like that phrase, but you know, that kind of thing. And I think that when you can do that or look at their video and, and show them exactly what could have been done differently or something like that, while respecting that armchair quarterbacking is really easy in these situations and respecting that they're making life-altering decisions in a split second and, you know, talking about it like that and, you know, respecting that they're making these very quick, complicated decisions, but stepping back and and, and using it as examples of reminders of this and that and just teachable moments, if you will. Have you noticed police officers leaving at a younger age?
0: I know in some jurisdictions like Fairfax, there seems to be a a shortage of officers because of early retirement it may not be the case over in Prince William but I'm sure there's right, in Fairfax there's a lot more younger police officers out there than than veterans who could actually offer some sort of mentoring to the younger Police officers.
2: Yeah, I think there's no question that there's a personnel crisis in law enforcement. Fairfax has declared it such. They have declared theirs to be a, a personnel crisis. Other counties aren't quite taking that approach, I think. But there's no question that I think less people are, are coming into law enforcement because of uh, things going on, both, you know, maybe they they are getting disenchanted with it, or they just don't like how law enforcement are treated from the other side, and they don't want to subject themselves to it, and or veteran police officers who are leaving because the prosecutors' offices have changed dramatically, and the approach to how cases are handled has changed dramatically, and you know the the policing itself has changed, and coming out of Richmond, but also local policies and and things like that, and I think you are seeing a mass exodus, and you're getting a lot of young police officers young and experienced police officers and i think police will say this privately but because of the number shortages they are putting some people forward who they probably would not have done in the past because they need to have certain minimum staffing and those people might not even make it through the field training phase when they're working under an officer but in the field and that's it a huge waste of resources, because you're investing in these people, you get them all the way through the academy. And then once they're on the street, then, okay, yeah, they really can't hack it. They're, they're they're not cut out for this. And I think you're seeing a lot of that. But, you know, veteran police officers are doing lateral moves, they're going to other jurisdictions, you see a lot of local going federal, things like that, or they're, you know, retiring. I know lots of police officers who the screen saver on their phone is a clock that ticks down to their <laughs> retirement I, I mean i know a lot of people like that but you know a lot of them are, are just they're going to other fields um they're leaving law enforcement altogether i ran into a friend last week who I hadn't seen in a while and said where have you been he says i'm not a police officer anymore i'm, I'm doing this and you know i think there's a lot of that too but I think they they're not just like any you can't hire anybody for anything right now it seems like and then for public safety you got this mass exodus combined with the inability to underfill it by hiring and then you bring in a lot of new people and experienced people and and that's when you know the issues start coming up Yeah I well,
3: think that's also, actually a good point You're also expecting police to do more than what you expected over in the past with mental health mm-hmm. and the different things that they're facing now with more like body cam footage. And, you know, they're having to mind P's and Q's that they might not have done as much of. Not with every officer, some officers, whether you have a camera on them or not, it's going to be the exact same. <laughs> like they're just some that are just like that. But you, we all know that there's some that if we didn't have that body camera, we know we've had cases where it would have been a different story. And so when you combine that with everything you're talking about, like who would want to be a police officer right now? I mean, it's dangerous. It's hard work and they don't get even the good officers don't get the respect and kudos that they really deserve.
2: Right. And, you know, we, we talk about it all the time, but, you know, 99.9 police officers are a percent of police officers are truly the good people who are there to do the right thing. Everyone makes mistakes. There's no question, but there are, there are like any profession, lawyers included, there are the the bad ones who, who give the rest a, a bad name, but you know, it's at this point, it's kind of coming from both sides, you know, and, The criticisms that they get, maybe unfairly so, I think that Northern Virginia was a little bit insulated during the 2020 kind of national, you know, kind of anti-police revolts because, I think our agencies do a, a good job of being in the community and connecting with people and you know and, and being trusted. And so it's not us versus them and it wasn't looked at it that way. There were still the protests and things like that, and 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 you know, maybe rightfully so in some situations. But you know, I think that just the the entire paradigm is changing. And when the law is changing you know, in Richmond, it, it's it's not leading it. The, the law never leads change. It always is reactionary. It's always catching up to change.
1: Yeah. And I also think that we do, I mean, there's a lot of just overall thought process changes. Like The way we did things, we have all these new prosecutors, of course, and these new approaches to criminal justice reform, which many of them were sort of slowly, glacially, going in that direction. Like I think about before 2020, if I had a weed charge and just a possession of marijuana charge, at Fairfax, oftentimes I would, you know, 25 hours of community service, you show up, they have no other record, it gets dropped, right? There was a lot of that going on, which was like, not that we're not prosecuting it, but we're really saying to the community, we recognize the community doesn't see marijuana as a big deal. And so we're not treating it the same way as we used to. And so that was sort of slowly happening. You know, it was kind of ridiculous that we were just playing that game all the time where it was like, well, if we're all just going to null prosties for 25 hours of community service, we shouldn't yeah. be prosecuting. But this, that also right.
3: depended on who you got because you'd be in one courtroom and getting something like that. And you'd be in another one that would yes. like, oh, all do paraphernalia with like a conviction or, you know, they all were different in how they handled him, which wasn't fair to people either.
1: And I'm not, and I definitely not saying it was better, but it was, just, you know, we were starting to see attitudes changing but people were used to police defense attorneys uh, prosecutors we we're all used to doing things in a particular way and how a case moved and it was like someone just dropped a grenade on all the cases and then of course the pandemic happened so we've tried to get used to the new situation and we've had a huge changes in personnel in both police departments and commonwealth Attorney's offices that make things difficult. And I don't mean in a people being bad, like bad personnel themselves. It's more of just when you have a lot of people moving in and out of offices, it can lead to like, I had that prosecutor, now like prosecutor's not here. So who do I deal with? There's a lot of kind of like, what's the policy? What's the process? Uh, And we're all creatures of habit. So I want to be able to say, I filed this motion, I did this thing, I got this camera, this was what happens. And, you know, to be able to look at my client and say, this is what I think is going to happen with your case. Um, and so there's been a lot of just uncertainty for all of that.
2: I think the best example of all was bond and bail reform. And the different, you know, you, you mentioned that some prosecutors, some offices were, were moving in a, at, a, at a glacial pace at that. But, you know, your bond motion was different in Arlington than it was in Prince William than it was in Loudoun. And when it came through and, and, and bond and bail form, get rid of the presumptions against bond, things like that, you know, you're already seeing differences in different counties. No one was not using cash bonds, despite what they say. And that has, you know, now cash bonds have really, fallen out of favor. And, you know, I remember when I started as a prosecutor, it was a, you know, jail or fine approach. It was a, you know, either, you know, hold or don't hold. You know, I I learned a lot about the system and I would start asking like, well, why do you want to hold this person in jail pre-trial? Oh, because they committed a crime. Okay. So you don't think they're going to commit another crime. You don't think they're dangerous to someone else. You basically want to punish them ahead of time. OK, that's not why we hold people pre-trial. You know, why do you want to secure bond in this case? If you're truly worried about public safety, it doesn't matter if they put down a five thousand dollar deposit. They're going to reoffend and do other things. Money does not keep the community safe. I think, in my opinion, that the appropriate place to use monetary bonds is when flight is your concern when, you know, they won't come to court. That's when you should consider those. But that took me a while to get there. I'm the chair of the Community Criminal Justice Board in Prince William, which oversees pretrial and, and local offenders probation. And uh, I remember at my first meeting, because I had this total prosecutor hat on, I had this, you know, this, this great example I was going to use to prove my point of a murder where, where uh, pretrial recommended release. And it, it was probably a mistake, you know, but it, it's what it said on the paper. And I was going to use, it to show you know why pretrial is wrong and bad and here's the problems with it and now i'm the chair of board that oversees it and i'm a hundred percent believer the community is far safer for having people on pretrial and for you know being released in the community and being able to maintain their job and therefore <clears throat> maintain their apartment and maintain their car and maintain everything else and you know, that's when they're going to be able to be successful on probation because all that hasn't been pulled out from under them. Just three days in jail can completely ruin someone's life. It's just enough time to lose your job, which is just enough time to lose your apartment, your car, and it can really put things in a tailspin. And I think the way that we were using bail and, and, and bond needed change and it was being done differently in different places. And you know, the push of bail and bond reform made an enormous difference. Um, Look at jail populations, things like that. The public safety rate, the way it's measured, people reoffending when being released is in the 90th, 95th percentile. It is a safe program. And, you know, my mindset was jail or jail or bail, you know, just no other way around it. Why shouldn't people have to pay money to get out of jail? And then you really start thinking about, well, Should people really be in jail just because they can't pay money? If our concern is not public safety, what is it? And and Judge Jarvis
0: actually brought that up and said, you know, the sky didn't fall. People were being released and, you know, people were coming to court. It was complete opposite from when the mentality was before the bail reform. You and him have the very... A very similar mindset on it and I agree with it obviously people should be out working and you said three days could change a life hey one day if it's a wrong day could change somebody's life I mean they miss they miss an interview they miss a job and they get fired one hour could be enough to get fired so
3: so getting back to our teaching stuff what are yeah, some of the questions that. what are some of the <laughs> questions that you get from police when you're training them
2: a lot of war stories, a lot of, well, there's one time I was doing, you know, a lot of that stuff, try to stay away from those if possible, or at least keep them, you know, somewhat generic, but you get a lot of that stuff and you get a lot of what ifs and the, the real ones, the the, the the most interesting, but the hardest discussions are the ones where there's a lot of discretion. And how do you you know have those conversations about what well, you could have done? You know, there's a lot of things you could have done. I can't tell you what you should have done and then talk about it and then get different officers giving their opinion and, and weighing in and seeing the difference in the veteran officers and the supervisors. And that's those kinds of discussions are, are really fruitful. But, you know, you get a lot of those questions. You get a lot of basic stuff. Or you get this, you take a break, and no one had any questions. But then there's 10 people that want to come up to the podium. (laughs) That's like the same
3: thing at lawyer conferences.
2: (laughs) but but People miss out on the whole purpose
0: of asking a question. You know, ask it, it may sound dumb to you, but there's probably 10% of the people in there who have the same question. They're just not going to voice it. So I have no problems asking questions. A, because people think I'm an idiot. But two, because I actually think it's a... Notice I went A to two, uh, but B because you know I think it's actually
3: <laughs> I didn't notice you did that <laughs> either.
0: That was I, that's, that's how that's how clever I am with my hair Way
3: to write yourself out. <laughs> no,
0: I just it was all planned. But no, it's it's I, I'm all about asking questions. I'm all about the Socratic method. Like when I do a CLE or a moderating, I actually try to go out and and give candy for those who actually ask questions. It's kind of a joke, but people actually appreciate it. So, well, you also
3: honestly. learn more from your mistakes or your losses or the things that well, yeah. you could have done better than you do absolutely. the things you routinely do or the th- cases that you routinely would win on those certain issues or, you know, that's, I mean, those are going to stand out better.
2: I, I think that's absolutely true. And it's true with police. It's true with lawyers. My my mentor and, and former boss, the 52-year elected commonwealth attorney of Prince William County, Paul Lieber, used to have a saying that, you know, you're entitled to make any mistake. You're not entitled to make it twice.
1: Yeah. I like that. Well, Alberta, Maybe. you could not have worked for Polly Bird. I'd be screwed. i would be surprised. that
0: nah, I mean, I'm actually a good attorney, contrary to what Anna said. <laughs>
3: of course you are. You
0: have...
1: No, no it, you're you're a good one and you run CLEs. I never ask questions at CLEs because it's the lawyer fear of like hearing yourself on a recording later on. It's always, <laughs> always very it like, wait, did I ask that everything? question? I like,
3: I like it when people ask the question, and someone else has to ask the same question that they thought is different, but it's really the same. But they just think they're asking it better, and I'm like, oh no. You know
2: what it is? <laughs> See, I, I ahead, typically Ty. have Ann ask my questions for me.
1: <laughs> you do, he, do that. <laughs> he never asked me because I always say. Tony wants to know, because I don't own the questions. I always give it back to Tony.
3: do that when he asks the questions, but if he has good ideas, I'll give him credit. (laughs) Anyway, was there anything else anybody has to ask about or to comment on in terms of?
1: Well, just to talk a little bit about the police officers' questions that come up to you who don't want everyone else to hear what they have to say. Do they tell you about a mistake they made or are they defensive about something? Or do they think that someone got it wrong? And can you tell them to make them feel better? Because I assume that that is some of the questions you're getting?
2: It tends to be a, what could I have done better? And that when the question starts with that premise, you're already in a good place because they've done some introspection and, and they are trying to grow from it. And so I think a lot of it's that, and they also don't want to admit their mistake to a group, but they do want to get better. And so I think that's human nature not want to be embarrassed, but also it's really encouraging that they want to learn and, and want to get better. A lot of it's war stories or, you know, they'll come up, well, you said this, well, there's one time and I'm like, let me stop you right there. You're always going to find exceptions to to things I've said or things we do. And, you know, so don't, don't take them as absolute and, and and things like that. But I really think the best discussions have to do with here's the law, here's the legal framework, but there's some discretion in it. And how'd you use your discretion and what'd you do and why? And I think that to Alberto's point that's the ones where I'm like look as soon as we start again i need you to ask that question to the class because it's going to lead to a discussion and it's not a stupid question and you know it it really kind of helps open things up and as soon as you'll get like someone with stripes on their arm to admit they made a mistake everyone will start doing it but they're afraid to you know admit they've done it or anything else but the whole goal is you know just just to get better i mean it's 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 you know, training. That's exactly what it is. And, you know, it's just like I joke around all the time that we practice law. It's because we never get it right. We just practice. And, you know, the police are always trying to get better as well and learn more. And we want them to be doing that. And there, and there are some officers and
0: Tony mentioned this earlier, but some officers are actually really hungry to learn Very. They'll approach uh, Tony uh, in the hallways and ask him to, you know, interpret statutes or go over with them. I actually get some phone calls from a couple of friends who are like, hey, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And they're, you know, they're just simple traffic statutes, but they're still important because they could lead to uh to an arrest, you know, first off. So, they're
3: simple to you, not simple, to people that could simple.
0: Right? simple to... <laughs> but the thing is, look, I've had some trouble with what I call simple traffic statutes. I mean, they can be, they're poorly written. Every statute's poorly written. My apologies to Scott several but you know, they're not easy to follow most of the time. They just aren't.
1: There's a lot of things within the Fourth Amendment that we've talked about, like searches and the That in that case law that is very discretionary. It's very wide open. And that's why almost every Fourth Amendment case that comes out on Tuesdays is unpublished because it's so fact-specific to that particular situation with that particular officer and that set of evidence. And if the defense attorney had asked this one more question, would the record have reflected a different thing or otherwise? And I've had officers say, well, what do you think has happened with this search that I did? And I'm like, well, in circuit court, depending on the type of search it was, I'm like, 50% of the judges are going to go this way and the 50% are going to go this way. And I can't tell you, but if you're upset about possibly losing a case, know that if you lose, if you get the 50% that says the search was no good, you still took 10 illegally held serial rubbed off firearms off the street. And those aren't going to go back to this person because they were illegal to begin with. So while you can learn from the search and maybe just being like, this could have been done better. There is a public safety aspect that you have done for someone, but that's usually I'm not telling them that on my cases. They're asking me about a different case that they've had. And, you know, when you do this work for 20 years, you get to know enough, a lot of police officers and they come to trust your judgment after you've lost a lot of cases to them. Well,
3: and I can see an officer that arrests somebody being invested in what happens. But what you just said is also a reminder. We all have different roles. Right. Like the judge has a different role than the officer and the prosecutor's got a different role than both of those people. And then the defense comes in with our role and then you have probation or pretrial. Like there's so many moving parts and we all need to just do the best job that we can do and let the other roles play their parts. And hopefully we get to the right outcomes. Right. And it doesn't work perfectly every time. but we shouldn't take it personal. I know it's hard for us all to do that. You can't help it with your own clients or a prosecutor sees a victim or an officer that, you know, they want to really fight for. The officer is really frustrated with the experience they went through or whatever the circumstances are. But when we make it personal, you lose that justice, which is what we all are aiming to have for every case. When you
0: you make it personal, there, there comes a comes a point where you start missing things because you're so invested personally that you're blind to an objective view. So yeah. and that goes through every profession, like uh, dealing with us, you know, more uh, defense attorneys, prosecutors, and police officers. That's where you just have to be careful. There's a fine line, like you were saying.
2: Yeah, and to Anne's point, you know, I, I, I do think it ebbs and, and flows. We make mistakes and, and we have our good days and bad days. But I think the general trajectory is upward. And we've all seen over the course of our careers, All of us are over 10 years, some 20. And we've all seen that, you know, kind of, I think, general improvement of, law enforcement of criminal procedure of all of that we talk a lot of time about statutes and oh they're clear and right they, they, but of course they're not we debate statutes all the time if anyone here could quickly give me a summary of all the statutes on driving on and driving on revoked and suspended I'd, I'd be highly impressed because no one knows all those statutes and we debate them all the time and they're inherently contradictory tony Retraver, probably knows them <laughs> <laughs> if, if Tony, knows, them too. <laughs> Tony knows that 391 is inherently contradictory of itself, but that's not what the police get get caught on. They do tend to think statutes are you know pretty cut and dry. What they don't get enough exposure to is what we get a lot of exposure to, which is case law, and that's where their questions come in. Um, to Anna's point about the case law and the discretion and fact specific, and you know when you read 20 different cases on search and seizure, and it's all on reasonable articulable suspicion, but you read you know you hear about 20 different factual scenarios, that's when it really, really resonates. So I find, you know, a lot of their questions are, are you know, case law based and whatnot. And they, they are intimidated to read them um, because they're complicated. And, you know, how many times have we read a Supreme court case and we think we know the holding? But wait, it turns out that's per curiam because only three justices, you know, it's really hard to, to track sometimes. And, you know, they'll be going through and, and, and then you'll say like, well, I think you're OK here because of, you know, Leon and Herring and, and, and good faith. And they're like, what's that? You know, I'm like, oh, wow, (laughs) we are really doing a disservice when we don't talk about these safety nets that, that are in the law for police
1: conduct. Well, it's good to know that they are being trained by somebody who is a case law nerd and also <laughs> yeah,
3: really he's like... A case- he's a case law connoisseur.
1: <laughs> I think he called himself a nerd. but I, also- I was going to agree
0: with him too. I was like, he said nerd? I Dude, you are such a nerd. <laughs> no, <but laughs>
1: case law, law connoisseur on so much better. Yeah, I've got
0: text message alerts when a case comes out. I read,
1: I read everything on Tuesday too. I used to read them when I started the public defender's office. We didn't have the internet. And they well, it um,
0: was it was nineteen twenty.
1: Oh, I'm God. younger than you, Alberto. You're the one who started in 1895. So,
3: okay. I didn't know Blake made it on tonight.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Blake's a civil war veteran.
0: So like. Blake Blake Wallison. (laughs) Anyhow, thank you very much. Any, any other last words? I think this has been a fantastic episode. I've learned a lot.
2: One thing I find when I speak to police officers, either when we're trying to resolve cases or, or after cases, but especially when you're trying to resolve them is. So long as they feel heard, so long as you have the conversation and both sides, you know, you can say, well, here's what I think. And they can say what they think and they feel heard and they understand the prosecutor's decision or understand what's happening with the case. They're okay with it. It's when they don't get any input and they don't understand why it's happening. That's when it's a problem.
3: But that also depends on the prosecutor and whether you take the extra time to explain that to them. Well, and that's because I mean, how- not everybody does like they just want to, you know, you those dockets rock and roll. You want to be done like yeah. you don't always take the time necessary.
2: and 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 that's how you build rapport and build relationships with officers when i was a state prosecutor i used to always say we work way better together in the courthouse when we grab a beer at the bar afterwards you know and because you're friends with the people and it's true with prosecutors and defense attorneys where our cases go much better for everyone when you know we're we know each other and and we have a, a grounding and whatnot one thing i used to always say and i and i still say it today in the town prosecutions, we might not agree in the end, but we're never going to disagree in front of the public. We are never going to disagree in front of the defense attorney. We are going to go to the office and talk about it and we're going to hear each other out. But you and I are not going to be yelling at each other in the hallway. That's not going to happen because everyone loses faith. You know, when it comes to teaching the police, what we're really talking about is, you know, the the training that they are going to base their decisions on their training and experience and and how it's constantly improving and everything like that. And to be clear, if there's one thing that people walk away from after listening to this. The police are generally trying to do the right thing. They're generally trying to follow the law. They are trying to get better at it. They do make mistakes. They're getting pressure from a lot of different sides and laws are changing quickly. And But they are trying to do the best with what they have. And we can help them both in true training, but in day to day and our conversations with them in every case we have, I think we can all make each other better. I have learned a lot from police over the years, and I hope they've learned a little from me.
3: I'm sure they have. And I agree. They're just trying to get home to their families at the end of the day. Like it, you know, they have a tough job and it's not always safe. And there's a lot of things that go into it that if you don't work in the system or you don't know police that work out in the fields and things like that, you're not aware of. And so the public gets, like Brad said, that percentage of the really bad things that happen. And then you tend to put it on everybody, which we all know is not accurate, right? And so they're just, at the end of the day, trying to get home to their people at home, just like the rest of us.
2: Absolutely. One of the biggest compliments I have, my number one referral source is police officers.
3: I'm
0: trying to get them to put a billboard in the back of the cruiser that says, if you could read this, call Salvado."
2: It's
1: in Spanish, right?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I offer thousands of pens. I say, give the entire police department (laughs) a hundred pens. I'll pay for them all. For some reason, they won't do it. I know an attorney who leaves a, a, like pens at the bar that says,
0: "If you get a, don't drink it dry, but if you get a DUI, call me. Oh, the, the lighters, the koozies. I was going to say,
3: there's lighters, yeah. koozies. I know who you're talking about. I used to work that attorney.
1: Yes. <laughs> hey, His office is right there, actually. I think, I, saw,
3: I think some of those lighters caught on fire.
1: Oh, <laughs> gosh. Well, yeah. well there's 10 a cents from- a lighter. <laughs> well, there
0: was another lighter that said, if you get burned by this attorney's lighter, we'll sue him.
3: <laughs> Well, thank you, Bob. This was a great discussion. And I think it's always good to get perspective because police are a big part of what we all do on a regular basis. And we can't forget that they're a piece of that whole justice system.
2: You know, the TV show Law and Order, I still don't know which was law and which was order, but I know we need both.
3: <laughs> I like it. I like also,
2: one. Thanks for joining us on Crime Time. Please join us again for our next episode.
3: If you enjoy our podcast, Crime time with Virginia defense attorneys. Be sure to share our podcast with someone that you know. You can find our podcast on most of the major platforms like Spotify, Google, and Apple, as well as some of the smaller podcast platforms. We also post on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. So you can find our episodes there every week on Tuesday at 9 a.m. If you want to leave us a review or a comment and tell us what topics you'd like to hear about, we always welcome feedback and we're always looking for new ideas and guests to bring onto our show. We hope you keep listening. And thanks for being a supporter of our podcast.